Time Travelling Team, the weekly podcast where we review every story of Doctor Who right from the very beginning. I'm Trisha. And I'm Paddy. This week we join the Doctor and Sarah Jane as they get brought in to investigate a seed pod discovered in Antarctica. We will be discussing the Doctor, the companions and the villains and giving our thoughts on the story as a whole. We would also love to hear your thoughts on the story. So, as always, to join the discussion, you can check us out at Time Team, that's T-I-M-E-T-E-A-M-P on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Or you can email us at timetravellingteam at teamproductions.com. Now, it has been a couple of weeks since we have recorded. Mm-hmm. I will apologise again for the technical issues. They're on my end, as per usual. But, Paddy, will you give us a story recap, please? I, I will <laughs> indeed. Also, I'm I'm angry at the cruel irony of the fact that we're talking about a story based in Antarctica where we're having an extremely hot day here in Ireland. Oh, yeah, I mean, but extremely hot for us is like... yeah. It's like twenty two degrees. <laughs> yeah, we, we 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 don't ha- we don't handle heat well. Us pasty Irish. No, like I said, I'm going to Vegas in August. I'm going to die, but it'll be fun. <laughs> Part one: On a glacier in Antarctica, two scientists are digging into the soft snow, looking for geological samples. One of them, Winlet, uncovers a small sphere and tells his colleague Morberly that they should take it back to their base to analyze it. Later, Stevenson, who was the base's botanist, confirms that it is vegetable in origin, but he will need to wait for it to fully defrost before he can learn anything else. William says that it looks like a tropical seed, but Morbley, who is a zoologist, says the depth they found it at would indicate that it was about 20,000 years old and therefore too long to be of tropical in origin. Their attention is drawn to Stevenson, who stares at the pod intensely and says that he feels like it's alive. Winlet and Morbley initially joke at this comment, but when they see that he is serious, they suggest a, a cup of coffee and playing a game of cards to ease his concerns. Before they leave, though, Stevenson takes some pictures of the pod and sends them back to the World Ecology Bureau in London for assessment. At the Bureau, the Doctor is shown the pictures by Dunbar, an aide to the head of the Bureau, Sir Colin Thackeray. Dunbar is sceptical of the Doctor's liability to help them, but the Doctor tells him to contact the base immediately and order them not to touch the pod until he gets there. Back at the base, Stevenson informs Winlet that the pod has grown since they brought it back to the base and it seems to be responding to ultraviolet radiation. Stevenson is reluctant to adhere to the orders from the Bureau, fearing it could jeopardise an amazing scientific discovery. Later, Dunbar visits a house in the country belonging to Harrison Chase, an eccentric millionaire who is heavily involved in ecological conservation. Dunbar shows him pictures of the pod and offers to sell it to him, saying that it might be extraterrestrial in origin and could potentially adapt to Earth's biosphere. Chase seems interested in the pod and asks Dunbar for the location as to where it was found. Once he gets it, he tells Dunbar that they will meet again soon and has one of his associates, Hargreaves, escort him from the house. He then calls two of his other associates, Keeler and Scorby, and instructs them to go to the base to retrieve the pod. At the base, Winlet falls asleep while keeping an eye on the pod. The pod opens up and a group of roots whip out and wrap themselves around his arm. Winlet calls out for help before collapsing to the ground. Stevenson and Morbley arrive and see that his skin has turned blotchy green. Stevenson calls the Bureau and Sir Colin says that they won't be able to get medical assistance to them due to the poor weather, but Dunbar says maybe the doctor can help as he should be arriving soon. Morbley greets the doctor and Sarah Jane after they are dropped off by helicopter and he brings the doctor to see Winlet before taking Sarah Jane to get warm due to the freezing conditions. Stevenson tells the doctor that his body temperature and pulse have been steadily dropping. The doctor pulls down the sheets covering Winlet and they see that his body is now covered in a massive green foliage. The doctor gets Stevenson to show him to the lab. En route they meet Morbley who says that a medical team from the South Bend base had to turn back due to the weather and a request has been sent for a medical military team to try and reach them. 
Stevenson says Winlet will be dead by then, and the doctor reveals that he was actually transforming into something else, and asks Morbidly for, to prepare a blood test. Stevenson recounts his initial experiments on the pod, and the doctor says that he may have put the world into jeopardy. They then go with Sarah Jane to the site where they found the pod, and the doctor finds another one there. Stevenson asks if there is more, but the doctor says that the pods travel in pairs, and doesn't elaborate further apart from saying they need to get into the base and frozen as soon as possible. Once there, Morbley shows the doctor the blood sample he took from Winlet. When he views it through the microscope, he sees that the sample is full of schizophytes, and reveals that Winlet's DNA is being rewritten. They then hear an aircraft approaching, and Stevenson and Morbley go to see who it is. Once they are gone, the doctor reveals to Sarah Jane that the pods are actually called crinoids, and are an alien weed that devours all life on any planet it lands on in order to sustain itself. Sarah Jane asks how it arrived on Earth, and the doctor says that any planetary upheaval on their homeworld could have jettisoned the pods into space. Morbley and Stevenson return with the crew of the aircraft, who are revealed to be Scorpion Keeler. The Doctor then asks to see Winlet again, and they all leave Scorpion Keeler to warm themselves up. They see that the transformation has progressed, and the Doctor suggests amputating the arm to kill the infection at its source. However, he says that it will be a temporary reprieve in order to find a cure. The Doctor says that Morbley will have to do the procedure, but he's reluctant to do so. Sarah Jane says that as a zoologist, he is the best qualified to do it, and they all say that they will help him through it. He agrees, and they go to fetch the medical kit, and once they have it, Morbley goes to prepare for the lab for operation. However, he is attacked by Winlet in the corridor. Part 2 Winlet kills Morbley and makes his way out of the base. Meanwhile, in the living area, Scorby finds a machine gun for the base's defence, and tells Cater to keep an eye out whilst he removes the firing pin, saying he dislikes guns in the hands of people he doesn't trust. Keener says that they've only been sent to confirm if the pod is extraterrestrial, and goes uncomfortable when Scorby says that they will be taking it by force. Scorby tells Keeler that they will kill the others and bury them in the snow, so their disappearance will be marked as a lost expedition. Keeler refuses to go along with it, but Scorby says that he will kill him as well unless he does as he is ordered. In the corridor, Sarah Jane finds Morbury's body and brings the Doctor and Stevenson to it. They then go to check on Winlet and find his room empty. Stevenson says that he can't believe Winlet would have killed Morbury, but the Doctor says that Winlet no longer exists and that it was the crinoid that he has turned into that did the killing. He says that they will need to find him and destroy him before it is too late. They go back to the living area and tell Scorby and Keeler that they are going out, with Stevenson retrieving the machine gun. After they leave, Scorby tells Keeler they need to find a pod. Scorby ransacks the lab as they search for the pod, much to Keeler's distaste. Suddenly a message comes in over the radio from the South Bend base, saying that the weather has cleared at their location and the military medical team is en route. Scorby, pretending to be morbidly, tells him that everything is okay and to cancel the rescue team. The South Bend caller grows suspicious and Scorby sabotages the radio to prevent any further contact. Back at Chase's house, Dunbar informs him about the infection, but Chase tells him not to worry and that Scorby will be bringing back the pod. He then gives Dunbar his bribe and promises to keep his part in their theft a secret. Back in Antarctica, the Doctor, Sarah Jane and Stevenson track Winlet to the base's generator plant, which Stevenson says is being run on a new experimental fuel, which is why it's so far from the base. They go check on it to search for any sign of Winlet. Stephen voices his scepticism about the Doctor's claims about the crinoids, but the Doctor angrily tells him that as long as Winlet is alive, then the world is in danger. Sarah Jane says that he is most likely frozen outside in the blizzard, and that they should be safe until they find him. They leave to continue the search, unaware that they are being watched by the crinoid. Back at the base, Scorby and Keeler have found the open pod, and Keeler, who is a botanist, says that the plant has been taken out of it. Scorby says that Chase wants the plant and they continue to search for the base. They eventually go to the lab and find Morbley's body, but quickly go into hiding when they hear the others return. 
Keeler calls the doctor and Sarah Jane into the lab, and once they arrive, Scorby holds them at gunpoint and demands to know what killed Moberly. The doctor and Sarah Jane tell them about Winlet being affected by the pod, but they don't give any specifics. The doctor says that Winlet will need food and warmth, and Scorby realises that he won't stay too far from the base. He and Keel are taken back to the living area and tied them up. Scorby then demands to know where the plant from the pod is. When the doctor tries to explain to him about Winlet becoming a crinoid, Scorby attempts to hit him, but stops when he hears Stevenson calling out for them. Scorby calls him to the living area, and when Stevenson sees them tied up, he threatens him with a machine gun. However, Scorby disarms him when the gun doesn't work, and tells him to sit with the others. The doctor informs him of their desire to get the pod, and Stevenson accidentally lets slip about the second pod. Scorby demands to know where it is, and the doctor berates him for his ignorance. Scorby then threatens them one at a time with his gun, and the doctor tells him that it's in a freezer when he threatens Sarah Jane. Scorby then takes Stevenson with him to retrieve the pod and use Keeler to watch the others. The doctor senses that Keeler is not like Scorby and appeals to him as a fellow scientist. Sarah Jane joins him and says that if he releases them, they can work together to stop Winlet. However, Scorby and Stevenson return with the pod and Scorby tells him to tie him up with the others. He then says that he has an idea and takes Sarah Jane with him and the doctor demands that he bring her back. Scorby orders Sarah Jane to take them to the generator plant and once there, starts to rig it up with explosives which will cause a chain reaction and destroy the base as well. Keeler says that it is cold-blooded murder, but Scorby ignores him. Keeler tries to fight him, but Scorby easily overpowers him and tells him that they need to leave as the bomb will go off in 10 minutes. Meanwhile, the doctor manages to get to his feet and knocks over a lamp in order to use the broken glass to cut through the ropes holding him and Stevenson. The doctor tells him to radio the South Bend base to see if they can intercept Scorby's plane on its way back to England. He then goes to find Sarah Jane. However, as Stevenson attempts to call the South Bend base, the Crinoid bursts in and attacks him. Out in the snow, the Doctor sees the plane take off and makes his way to the generator plant. He finds Sarah Jane there, but she tells him to defuse the bomb first. Suddenly, the Crinoid bursts in and prevents the Doctor and Sarah Jane from defusing the bomb. They manage to lock it inside and flee out of the blast radius. The bomb goes off, destroying the generator plant and the base. Part 3 Hours later, Sarah Jane wakes up in the snow when she hears the sound of an approaching vehicle. Three men approach her, and one of them introduces himself as Chester, a doctor from the South Bend camp. He says that the others are members of the military medical team that have come to help with the rescue. Sarah Jane frantically begins searching for the doctor, and they find him nearby, face down in the snow. However, he wakes up and gives them a reassuring smile. Meanwhile, Scorby and Keeler arrive back at Chase's house with the pod and inform him as to the events at the base. Chase laments the loss of the other pod, but they are interrupted by the arrival of Dunbar. He voices his disgust at the destruction of the base, but Chase says that he was paid handsomely, so he should just accept what happened. However, Dunbar reveals that the Doctor and Sarah Jane survived and are en route to the Bureau to meet up with himself and Sir Colin. Later at the meeting, Sir Colin wonders why anyone would want to go to such lengths to steal the pod, and the Doctor says that its uniqueness makes it valuable. He becomes exasperated when Dunbar voices his scepticism, and Sarah Jane takes over the explanation as to what happened at the base. However, she too grows frustrated, and the doctor takes over the conversation again, and says that someone else is behind the theft, and that someone within the bureau was an accomplice. Sir Colin is shocked by the claim, and the doctor says that enough money will tempt anyone. Sir Colin says that he will put the full resources of the bureau at their disposal, and the doctor asks Dunbar to arrange a car to the Botanic Institute. A short while later, a car comes to collect them, but the driver instead takes them to an isolated country road and tells them to get out of the car at gunpoint. The doctor manages to knock him to the ground, and then he and Sarah Jane flee into a nearby quarry, pursued by the driver. The doctor manages to get the drop on him and knocks him out. 
We then go back to the car to find any clue as to who he was working for. Serge Jane finds an expensive painting in the boot of the car, painted by the renowned botanical artist Amelia Ducat. They go to visit Ducat at her house and ask her who bought it from her. After some more dissociation to remember the name, she reveals that Chase took it from her. At Chase's home, Keeler runs some tests on the pod, but they come back with negative results. He tries to get Chase to destroy the pod, saying that what happened with Winlet in Antarctica, but Chase says that with the proper precautions, there is nothing to worry about. A call comes through informing them that the driver has been taken to hospital. At that moment, the doctor wearing the driver's hat and coat arrives at the house and is let in by the security. Sergei Nick gets up from hiding and together they sneak in through the back. However, they are shot at by the guards as they race through the grounds of the house, but they are eventually captured by Scorby. He brings them to see Chase and after some wishy repartee, the doctor demands to be given the pod. However, Chase refuses, saying that the flower from the pod will be the crowning piece of his collection of rare and unique botanical specimens. He then says that he will have them both killed for their constant interference, but says he will show them his collection before they die. Once in the greenhouse, Chase uses an electronic soundboard to play a series of strange melodies which he says he uses to talk to the plants. The Doctor and Sarah Jane are not too impressed by the sounds produced from it, and they are spared further suffering when Hargreaves arrives to tell Chase that Keeler says the pot is beginning to open. Chase leaves Scorby in charge, and he takes them out of the greenhouse to execute them. However, they manage to distract him and incapacitate him before making their way to the perimeter wall. Sarah Jane says Anita calls for Colin, and the Doctor says that they will get her out so that she can make the call whilst he goes back to deal with the pod. The Doctor lowers her over the wall, but a short while later she accidentally steps on a branch and is captured by a pair of guards, who bring her back to Scorby. He takes her to Chase's office, where Chase and Keeler are observing the pod as it continues to grow. Chase demands to know where the Doctor has gone, but she refuses to tell him, even when Scorby points a gun at her. Chase says that they will use her as a guinea pig to see what happens when the vines within the pod touches her skin. The Doctor, who is observing the events from the skylight above the office, watches in horror as the pod begins to open. Part 4. The Doctor dives through the skylight and knocks out Scorby by breaking a chair over him. He then takes out Scorby's gun and holds the others at gunpoint whilst he frees Sarah Jane and they then escape, locking the others inside. As Chase bangs on the door to be released, the pod suddenly opens and the vines wrap themselves around Keeler's arm. A guard opens the door and Scorby orders him to follow him so they can raise the alarm to recapture the Doctor and Sarah Jane. Chase watches in fascination as Keeler begins to rapidly transform into a crinoid. Chase refuses to call an ambulance and instead orders the confused Hargreaves to bring him to an old cottage on the grounds. Meanwhile, the doctor tells Sarah Jane to hide in a coal bunker whilst he tries to draw off the guards. Sarah Jane comments that he doesn't use guns to defend himself, but the doctor remarks that Scorby and the others don't know that before setting off. He rushes back to Chase's office but finds it empty. Scorby appears with a machine gun and reveals that Keeler was attacked by the vines. The doctor tells him that Chase is insane, but Scorby says that he doesn't care as Chase pays him well for his services. He then forces the doctor out of the office and leads him to a storage room where he starts to beat him. He then shows him a giant composting machine and orders a guard to tie up the doctor. Several hours later, Keeler wakes up in the cottage to see that his transformation has progressed. He begs to be given medical attention, but Chase is obsessed with seeing how the transformation will turn out and he leaves with Hargreaves to get monitoring equipment. As they leave, Chase assures Hargreaves that everything will be okay so long as they keep him confined. Unbeknownst to them, they are being watched by Sarah Jane. Chase arrives back at his greenhouse and Scorby enters telling him of the doctor's capture and the continuing search for Sarah Jane. The phone then rings and a guard at the entrance informs Chase that Ducat is outside, demanding to see him so she can get the money she, he owes her, otherwise she will seek legal aid. Chase relents and orders the guard to bring her to the library. 
Meanwhile, Sergene enters the cottage and hears Keeler's moans, which she goes to investigate. She is shocked to see him in his transformed state, but he assures her that he means her no harm. He asks her what happened to Winlet, but she says the doctor will be able to give him better information and asks where he might be. Keeler says that he will help her look for him if she unties him, but she refuses. He says that he won't hurt her, but she says that the crinoid within him might overpower him. He grows angry, saying that everyone wants him to die. She then hears someone approaching and hides in a closet just as Hargreaves comes in with food for Keeler. In the library, Chase goes to meet Duca, and after a brief discussion about his collection, he writes a check for her. Scorby arrives to ask about starting the composter, but upon seeing Duca, he refers to it as a recycling experiment. Duca asks what the experiment is, but Chase says that it's top secret and has Scorby escort her out. As he is showing her out, Scorby is brought away by one of the guards to give an update on the search for Sarah Jane. Unbeknownst to them, Sarah Jane, having managed to sneak out of the cottage, emerges from hiding behind a suit of armour and asks Duca to relay a message to Sir Colin about the pod. She then goes back into hiding when Scorby returns to show Duca out. He says he thought he heard voices, but Duca says that she talks to herself in her old age. Meanwhile, Chase arrives at the composting room and reveals that he's been keeping Keeler safe and nurtured, leading a concerned doctor to ask if he has been feeding him. Chase ignores him and has a guard place him into the composter. He then tells the doctor that he will set the machine to start automatically, which will kill him and destroy his body before feeding it into the garden. He then leaves after the machine starts. A short while later, Sarah Jane arrives and the doctor tells her to turn off the composter. She accidentally speeds it up at first, but manages to stop it and free him. She then tells him about Keeler. At the cottage, Hargreaves enters the room with another plate of food, but is horrified when he sees that Keeler has completely turned into a crinoid. Outside the house, Duca enters Sir Colin's car and tells him that his concerns were true as she relays Sarah Jane's message to him. Sir Colin says that they should call Unit, but Dunbar, who is also in attendance, says that he will go and try to help them, saying that he needs to make amends for his mistake. He says that if he is not back in 30 minutes, then they should go back to London and call Unit. Dunbar makes his way to Chase's office, where he confronts him about what he has done. Hargreaves then arrives and says that Keeler has gotten loose, and Dunbar pulls a gun and says that he will go kill him. Chase, refusing to let him stop his study of the crinoid, orders Scorby to stop Dunbar. Meanwhile, the Doctor and Sarah Jane arrive at the cottage and find Keeler missing, and they go to look for him, with the Doctor taking a sword from the wall as they leave. They hear gunshots coming from the woods, followed by a scream, and they arrive to find the crinoid, now roughly the size of a small tree, standing over Dunbar's body. The Doctor swings the sword at her to keep it at bay, but Sarah Jane screams as it advances on them. Part 5 Scorby and a group of guards arrive and open fire when they see the crinoid. The Doctor and Sarah Jane use the distraction as a chance to escape and tell Scorby and the others to flee as well. They make their way back to the cottage and the Doctor tells them to bar the door and keep quiet so as not to draw the attention of the crinoid. Scorby is incredulous when they tell him that Keeler turned into the crinoid but he's distracted when he gets a call from Chase on his walkie-talkie. Chase demands that he ensure that the crinoid not be harmed and Scorby tries to reason with him but to no avail. The Doctor takes the walkie-talkie to try and appeal to him, but Chase cuts the communication. Scorby asks how big it will grow, and the Doctor says that it will continue to grow until it encompasses the entire planet. Suddenly, a tendril breaks through one of the windows, and Scorby shoots at it while Sarah Jane tries to attack it with an axe, but is thrown back. The Doctor stabs it, forcing it to retreat, and he tells the crinoid that they are not afraid of it. The crinoid responds in a booming, ghostly voice, and says that if the Doctor goes out to it, then it will spare the others. The Doctor and Sarah Jane realise that it is only making the offer because it knows the Doctor is a threat to it, but Scorby demands that he go out to the crinoid. 
The Doctor angrily says that he is the only hope they have of stopping it, and that Scorby's attempts to save himself would be pointless. The Grinnell says it will give them until daybreak, but the Doctor says that by that time it will have grown large enough to smash the cottage to pieces and kill them all. The Doctor then asks Scorby to make a firebomb so they can use it on the crinoid and give the Doctor a chance to escape. Meanwhile, at the Bureau, Sir Colin and Duca are waiting to get through to Unit. They are told that the Brigadier is unavailable, but they are told that his subordinate, Major Beresford, will join them as soon as possible. In the morning, Scorby has prepared a Molotov cocktail and the Doctor tells him that after he leaves to take Sarah Jane to the main house and keep her safe. Scorby then goes upstairs and throws the Molotov at the crinoid and it recoils in pain from the flames, allowing the Doctor to escape. He takes off after him, and once the coast is clear, Scorby, Sarah Jane and the guards escape to the main house. Once there, they are told by Hargreaves that Chase went outside to try and take some photographs of the crinoid. An incredulous Scorby tells him to gather up as much wood as possible so they can start to board up the windows, and Sarah Jane says that she heard a car leave, which means the Doctor must have gotten away. Scorby says that he probably left in order to save himself, but Sarah Jane retorts that he cares about other people, unlike Scorby and Chase. Scorby angrily tells her to follow his instructions or he'll kill her, but she refuses to be intimidated by him and he storms off. Outside, Chase encounters the crinoid and fascinatedly takes some photos of it. However, he recoils in horror as it approaches him and he says that he wants to try and help it. Later, the doctor arrives to the bureau and goes to Sir Colin's office, where he's explained the situation to the recently arrived Major Beresford. Beresford says that he can't launch a raid on the property without proof. The doctor tells him that within the next few hours, all the vegetation on the planet will turn hostile as a result of the crinoid's influence. When they scoff at his statements, he shows them a message he took from Sir Colin's secretary, which lists reports of a series of strangulations of people, all found in vegetated areas within a mile of Chase's estate. He then calls the estate and tells Sarah Jane that they're on their way back, but the phone goes dead after the crinoid's tendrils rip out the telephone lines. Scorby returns and Sarah Jane tells him about the doctor coming back, but they are forced to take cover when they see the ivy vines cracking through the windows. Hargreaves comes in and says that all the guards have fled and it has just them left. He says he heard screaming from the garden and Sarah Jane heads out to investigate, followed by a reluctant Scorby. They go outside and find one of the guards strangled by some of the vines. Suddenly Chase appears and says that he needs to get his photographs developed. As he leaves, he says that he accepts the idea of the crinoid using the plants to take over the planet. Scorby says that he is insane, but Sarah Jane says that he has, seems to have been insane for a long time. They go back to the main house, where they find him talking to the plants in his greenhouse. Scorby tries to talk to him, but he seems to be in a trance and begins to speak, referring to himself as part of the plant life, seeking to rid the world of humanity and animals. Sarah Jane then notices the plants beginning to move towards them. The plants start to strangle Sarah Jane and the others, and Chase calmly tells them not to resist. Suddenly, the doctor and a unit soldier burst into the greenhouse and begin to spray the plants with herbicide. Chase tries to stop them, but to no avail, and angrily swears revenge before escaping. The doctor manages to free Sarah Jane and Scorby, but discovers Hargreaves has been killed, so they leave and seal off the greenhouse. They then start to take all the plants out of the lab to prevent the crinoid from using them, but after they go outside, Chase shuts the door and locks them out. They desperately try to break back in, and suddenly the crinoid appears, towering over the house. Part 6 the crinoid is forced back and is hit by a sudden barrage of lasers, fired by Beresford and his men. The doctor spots another door across the yard and they rush to it, managing to get inside whilst the creature is distracted. They go back to the lab and the doctor says they need to find Chase. He then remembers that Sarah Jane said that he managed to get photos of the crinoid and must have returned unharmed, and therefore he is possessed by the crinoid. He then tells Scorby and the soldier to search one side of the house whilst he and Sarah Jane search the other. After they leave, Chase returns to the lab and smashes a radio, preventing them from trying to call outside for help. 
The soldier comes to collect the doctor and Sarah Jane when he says that more and more tendrils are breaking through the windows and they retreat to the lab where Scorby is waiting for them. He gives them his gun whilst he goes to find more timber to reinforce the windows, but he is ambushed by Chase, who clubs him over the head with a wrench. He then drags his body to the compost room and feeds it to the machine. Scorby starts to panic and suggests that they should make a run for it, but the doctor says that the crinoid's influence over the local vegetation has grown stronger and would stop them from escaping. Scorby says that they have been abandoned by Beresford and the others, but Sarah Jane tells him to shut up as his panicking is starting to annoy her. The doctor starts to work on repairing the radio in an effort to reach outside whilst the crinoid starts attacking other parts of the house to try and break in. Scorby uses the opportunity and runs outside, ignoring the doctor and Sarah Jane's pleas to come back. He fights through the foliage and falls into a pond near the edge of the estate. However, as he tries to get out, he is pulled back under the water by pond weeds and drowned. Back in the house, the doctor tells Sarah Jane to find the soldier so she, he can find the radio frequency Beresford is using. She finds the planks he was collecting and makes her way to the composting room, where she is confronted by Chase. He starts to speak about his appreciation of the crinoid and how it will wipe out the plague of humanity off the planet. In the lab, the doctor manages to get through to Beresford, who has taken up position at the edge of the estate with Sir Colin. The doctor tells him that they have only about 15 minutes before the crinoid germinates the entire planet by launching seed pods into the atmosphere. He says that the only way to stop it is to launch an air assault on it with high explosives. Sir Colin points out the danger that both he and Sarah Jane will be in, but the doctor says that stopping the crinoid is more important. The doctor then goes to find Sarah Jane. He heads to the composting room where he finds her in the machine and he manages to switch it off before she is fed into it. Chase appears and tries to stop him, but the doctor throws him to the ground. The doctor helps Sarah Jane out of the composter, but he's attacked by Chase, who turns on the machine again. The doctor pulls him into the machine, but he tells Sarah Jane to turn off the machine. However, her hands are still tied up and she's unable to turn it off and they watch as Chase is fed into it. Outside, the attack squadron does a sighting run over the house before circling back to prepare for the attack. So Colin asks Beresford to see if there's any sign of the Doctor and Sarah Jane, but he says nothing has been reported yet. In the house, the Doctor and Sarah Jane find their exit blocked by foliage, but the Doctor takes a steam pipe from the wall and directs it at the foliage, which recoils in pain. They then fight their way through it and manage to find their way into a clearing moments before the air raid commences. They watch as the crinoid and the house is destroyed by the firebombs. Later, at the Bureau, Sir Colin asks the Doctor if that is the last they will have heard of the crinoids, but he says that they can never be certain. Sir Colin then says that the Doctor has been asked to speak at the Royal Horticultural Society, but the Doctor says that he and Sarah Jane need a holiday, and suggests going to a beach planet of Cassiopeia. They invite Sir Colin, who declines, saying that he is expected home for tea. However, the Doctor and Sarah Jane, who has changed into beachwear, find themselves back in Antarctica. The duo then laugh as they wonder if they have arrived there after the events that have just happened or beforehand. End of the story. So, I'm going to give these six parters, they really take it out of me. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm going to give my voice a rest for about maybe two minutes before chiming in uh, once, <laughs> once Trish does the trivia spot. So what have you got for us this week? Cool. So the air date for the Seeds of Doom is the 31st of January to the 6th of March, 1976. The writer of the story is Robert Banks Stewart. This is the second and final story from Robert, who previously saw his work in Terror of the Zygons. The director is Douglas Campfield. This is the final of 11 stories for Dougie, who previously saw his work in An Unearthly Child, where he did some of the filming sequences with Boris, Planet of Giants, where he did episode 3, 
the crusade, he did the location work for the chase, the time meddler, the Daleks master plan, the web of fear, the invasion, he did some of the work on Inferno, and also he did Terror of the Zygons. Rumoured working titles for the story are The Seeds of Death, which was changed, obviously, because we already had The Seeds of Death <laughs> in Season 6, so that would have been awkward. Um, and also Very The Crenoid Invasion was apparently one of the working titles, though they're not on any paperwork currently available at the BBC. One of the things about this particular story is that it does have some strong influences, uh, one of which is from one of Paddy's favourite things. So, Paddy, do you want to describe what inspired it? The Thing. Particularly The Thing from Another Planet. Um, Yes. Or Who Goes There, if you're going by the short story. Yeah, so... Who Goes There deals with the actual alien entity. So that's the short story, mm. first of all, that, uh, which is like the alien entity. Mm. The thing from another planet or thing from another world, which I still have to watch another fully, that's we have to watch fully uh, is the kind of the more vegetated version. It's mm. like the, that's the more plant-based version. And then there's my absolute favorite movie of all time, John Carpenter's The Thing, which goes back to the alien organism side of things. Yeah, so... Obviously, just given the time that this story came out, it would have been the 1951 version of the film, The Thing from Another World. Mm -hmm. Um, On the DVD commentary, uh, Robert Stewart Banks also says that, like, he got accused of, like, stealing the idea of, like, a hostile, mobile alien plant from the Day of the Triffids. But he said that, like, they draw from common roots. Like, it's a common enough story. I think he actually pointed out that like the day of the triffids like stole some other stuff as well. So yeah, I th- I think that like the day of the triffids has been like acute or has been it's one of those don't throw stones if you live in a glass house type things. Yeah, exactly. This story marks the Doctor's final major involvement with the unit up until Battlefield in season twenty six. So while there will be sort of mentions of units sort of here and there, um, this is the last. I'm going to say somewhat major unit story until we get to Battlefield. It's also the first unit story to not have either the Brigadier or Benton. With this being one of the times where the Brig can't help you now, he's in Geneva. Which is still a fantastic song <laughs> that you can find on YouTube. I love it. Um, so it's crazy thing this is the first unit story where we haven't had the Brigadier or Benton inside now. There were talks of bringing the Brigadier and Benton back for this episode, but we sort of felt that there wasn't really enough material to warrant it. And while it was sort of offered to Nicholas, I think we mentioned the last time we spoke about Nicholas, that he was committed to a theatre tour at the time and he wasn't really available. And Mm. afterwards, when he saw what the story was, he was kind of like, eh, okay, like, it wasn't really a unit, unit story from Nicholas's point of view. No, it really wasn't. This story is the last use of the current police box prop. Um, It wore out and broke apart. Uh, Reportedly, it fell on Tom and Liz while they were inside in it and hit Liz in the head. Nope, not good. A few weeks before this era was due to be transmitted, there was a bit of a problem where the PAL videotape, the colour videotape of part one went missing and Philip was trying to frantically plan out a re-edit of part two to allow that to be the beginning of the story. 
thankfully, because we know how re-editing of episodes goes, looking mm. at you, planet of giants, um, they did find the episode. The tape was found, and apparently it had just been misplaced in the tape storage system because it was numbered incorrectly. Uh, I can't imagine how you could have reworked episode two to essentially be episode one. That would take some very crafty rejigging, I think. Yeah, no, it wouldn't work. It wouldn't work at all. So, Kenneth Gilbert, who plays Richard Dunbar, um, he actually almost didn't get to appear in the story. So, after the second session of pre-filming, he contracted chickenpox from his daughter. And originally he just wanted to take a few days off, but his doctor said that he had to take two weeks off. Thankfully, because he'd already done some of the pre-filming work, and he was obviously familiar with the role, Dougie moved the shooting schedule around to allow for him to do his filming at the end. Um, but Gil- but Kenneth was convinced that like, had he not done the pre-filming beforehand, he would have lost the story entirely because of Chicken Fox. Jesus. The crinoid costume may look familiar-ish to people who have seen the Claws of Axos. Uh, it is taken from one of the Axon costumes and sprayed green. I thought it looked familiar, all right. Yep. I think it looks better green. It does. Speaking. The name crinoid, which is spelt with a K, so K-R-Y-N-O-I-D, apparently is adapted from crinoid, spelled C-R-I-N-O-I-D, which is a flower-like creature that's sort of like a starfish, sea urchin type thing. This is the only Doctor Who story where stuntman Alan Chunce actually plays a character. <laughs> and not a st- this is only on-screen credit he has. He plays the chauffeur. Um, usually he's just a stuntman. This is his only on-screen credit. So, good for you, Alan. Philip Hinchcliffe wasn't a big fan of Amelia Ducat. Or I, I must say, the first time Paddy sent me this woman's name, because I completely forgot about her, I was like, why are we discussing Ducat? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> this. But yes, uh, Amelia Ducat, um, Philip Hinchcliffe wasn't a fan of her character. He felt that the subplot was just largely for padding, and when he did the novelization, he just completely removed the character. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a bit harsh. Um, and apparently some fans were very vocal in their objections to that choice. Um, because like, she was in the story, you know, more than a little bit. Um, but yeah, no, he, he cut her out an awful. <laughs> I would say that she has two relevant scenes and her third scene is completely irrelevant. Yeah. 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 Um, when the Doctor arrives in Antarctica, Morbidly's confused by his appearance, saying he expected someone older. Um, this was obviously mentioned earlier in the episode where they said, like, oh, they're sending some like, random old fossil who doesn't know anything or whatever. And then obviously they've gone and looked at the Doctor. Um, this is apparently a bit of a reference to Bob Holmes' original concept for the fourth Doctor being an older, eccentric man. But then they ended up casting Tom Baker, who is obviously quite younger <laughs> than <laughs> that. And so, you know, it was sort of a bit of a nod to that. He's a younger, eccentric man. Yeah. Uh, Michael McStay, who played Moberly, was actually injured in a car accident after leaving the studio. And according to Tom, Tom Baker, that is, uh, his false beard hit the scars. Which, if he had Hmm. scars on his face, I could only imagine what that car accident was like. Oof. 
Interesting point that I had never heard before. Um, apparently, it was originally intended for Hand of Fear, which we'll get to in two, in two more episodes before we get to Hand of Fear. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, apparently, that was originally meant to be the season finale, but the scripts weren't ready. And so Seeds of Doom was commissioned as a replacement story. Oh. That's interesting. Now, I will say that when we get to the Hand of Fear, it'll be very emotional. Mm. Um, because the Hand of Fear is when Sarah Jane leaves. And I yes. hadn't realised it was coming up so soon. Um, I don't think, and we may discuss it when we get there at the time, but I don't, like, if the Hand of Fear had been the season finale, I don't think that would have meant that Sarah Jane would have left at the end of this season. Yeah. Because, you know, we'll talk about it more when we get to the Hand of Fear, but Liz's leaving the show wasn't the purpose of a story. Do you know? Yeah. Um, so I think she still would have been there for the first two stories of the following season. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that would have happened regardless. Yeah. Okay. On to the cast of this story. We have Michael Barrington playing Sir Colin Thackeray. This is the only Doctor Who acting credit for Michael. His non-Who credits include Porridge, mm-hmm. Emu's Wild World, Emu's All Live Pink Windmill Show, All Live, no, all, Emu's All Live, all live Pink Windmill <laughs> Show, that makes more sense, uh, Can We Get On Now Please, The New Avengers, and Zed Harris. Michael passed away in 1988. As Richard Dunbar, as I mentioned, we have Kenneth Gilbert, this is the only Doctor Who acting credit for Kenneth. His non-Who credits include The Air of Skipton, The Three Musketeers, The Glanville Melodramas, Hamlet, Crown Court, The Tempest, Ivanhoe, and House of Cards. Kenneth passed away in 2015. As Arnold Keeler, we have Mark Jones, only Doctor Who acting credit for Mark. His non-Who credits include A Family at War, Zed Cars, Under Milkwood, Crown Court, The New Avengers, The O'Needle Line, Target, The Empire Strikes Back, where he played an Imperial officer, and Red Dwarf. Mark passed away in 2010. As Harrison Chase, we have Tony Beckley. This is the only Doctor Who acting credit for Tony. Bit of a trend happening here. Uh, his non-Who credits include The Italian Job, Suspense, The Saint, Zed Cars, Falstaff, Treasure Island, Get Carter, and Revenge of the Pink Panther. Tony passed away in 1980. As Scorby, Scorby, <laughs> we have John Chalice. Chalice? How do you pronounce his last name? I think it's Chalice. Okay, we're going to go with Chalice. So. Uh, again, only Doctor Who acting credit for John. On screen, he did provide a voice in a Big Finish production. He was the voice of the fifth incarnation of Drax in the audio story The Trouble with Drax. His non-Who credits include The Newcomers, Zedkars, Bojest, The Green Green Grass, Benadorm, and obviously the role we all know him from in Horses. Yeah. Yeah, which it's impossible to watch him in anything else. Oh god! Like just like, like is that er- just me? No, no. Like I, I, I was watching this, and all I just kept thinking in my head was like Marlene. <laughs> <laughs> like, um, oh. Yeah, no. It's it's very. He's one of those actors that is very. He's so much associated with one role mm. that it's very difficult to differentiate different roles. Yeah. Um, sadly, John passed away last year in 2021. As Derek Moberly, we have Michael McStay, as I mentioned. This is the only Doctor Who acting credit for Michael. His non-Who credits include Carnation Street, Park Ranger, The Black Arrow, No Hiding Place, Zed Cars, and The Avengers. I'm very happy to say, I was doing this trivia and I was like, 
passed away passed away i was like oh my god are we actually gonna get to the end and find that the only like living member of this cast mm. is tom baker no mm. thankfully michael is at the point of recording still with us Whew. which is slightly less depressing than the original mm. list i have uh john stevenson is played by hubert reese this is the third and final doctor who this is the third and final doctor who credit for hubert who previously saw him as the chief engineer in fury from the deep and as captain ransom in the war games his non-who credits include Under Milkwood, Paul Temple, Public Eye, The Sweeney, The Sweeney 2, Sherlock Holmes, and The Baker Street Boys. Hubert passed away in 2009. Lastly, as Amelia Ducat, we have Sylvia Coleridge. This is her only Doctor Who acting credit. Her non-who credits include Tess, the 1967 version of Pride and Prejudice, Masterpiece Theatre's production of Bleak House, Angels, Armchair Thriller, Zed Cars, and The Lotus Eaters. Sylvia passed away in 1986. A very long list of characters. I don't think we're going to be discussing all of them. No, we're but not. They were on the initial list. Patty gave me, so they're the ones I looked up. Yeah, they had they had enough contributions to warrant a casting note or casting trivia, but mm. not so much a discussion based trivia yeah. thing or discussion based thing. Mm. Molly. <laughs> <laughs> so we now come on to the second god i keep doing the second part where the next part like of the pocket paul has a complete fucking field day with this kind of shit like so uh, for anyone of our listeners that does a cro- that has the crossover listen of listening to uh, Half Measures, Paul had a little bit of a, a rib at our expense because he was talking about uh, he's been watching uh, Doctor Who. He's uh, in New Zealand, um, like most streaming services, they only get like you know certain seasons at a time. So he's not Matt Smith's era. But then he started talking about our podcast. Thanks again, Paul. Mm-hmm. And about, you know, discussing the the classic stories. And he said, such as Genesis of the Daleks and the Space Pirates. <laughs> <laughs> Wanting to see what, if we would, like, you know, like, let her face start swinging a chainsaw around <laughs> like, wildly. Um, so, He's yeah. lucky he lives very far away. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh. So, anyway, our character discussion. Uh, <laughs> This week includes, as always, the Doctor, the companions of Sarah Jane, flying solo this week. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is the first time in a while we've had no story-based companions, I think. We didn't have story-based companions for Android Invasion, I don't think. Yeah, you're right. I sometimes just, like, you know, like, sometimes... <laughs> it's and, been and, a very long time since we recorded. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, no, I've put on the prominent characters for Sir Colin, Dunbar, mm-hmm. and Keeler. Yes. And then the villains of Chase, Scorby, and the Crinoid itself. No, that's obviously not the order we're going to discuss the villains in. Um, but the order that we are going to discuss stuff is in, as always, is the Doctor goes first. So, your thoughts on all teeth and curls? <laughs> um, it's a good showing from the Doctor here. I do think there was one moment where I was like, don't be a dick. Which is in episode two, I believe, mm. one or two, um, when they're saying that they should cut off um, your man's arm to stop mm-hmm. the spread of 
the infection. And clearly Moberly is freaked at the idea of doing it and Stevenson doesn't have the necessary skills to do it. And Moberly's like, oh, can you not do it? And he says this comment of, you must help yourselves. Which, like, Sarah's like, he's not that kind of doctor. Mm. But I'm like, that just came across as incredibly callous given the circumstances. <laughs> like, just explain yourself and say, I'm sorry, I'm not that kind of doctor. You're in the best position here. As opposed to, you must help yourselves. It's like, this is, this is I walk in eternity fucking bullshit again. Like, No, th- this is like the doctor cosplaying Zoidberg Jesus. You know, save me, Jesus. I save those who save themselves. Yeah. Um, so that, but that was probably the only like criticism I had of him. I was like, that was particularly callous. Um, what I do love in this story is that we get another example of the doctor's dedication to and care for Sarah Jane. Mm. Um, very reminiscent of encounters we've seen with them in the past where Sarah has been threatened. You know, the doctor doesn't bluster when there's a gun pointed at Sarah's head. He's like, it's in the freezer. Mm. Like, it, if you're threatening, it's actually like, uh, on the one hand, it's very sweet. On the other hand, like, if you're a villain, just threaten Sarah Jane, the doctor will tell you anything you need to know. Yeah. Um, but I do love the fact that, like, he doesn't play fast and loose with her life. No. Ever. Which is great. Um, It's really good to see. And, like, even, like, when Scorby takes her out of the room, mm-hmm. that's where you have, like, him screaming Scorby over and over again. Scorby! Yeah. Which is so good. Um, yeah. it's, it's very Tom-esque, but such a great, um, a great look into how scared he is for her. Mm. Do you know? We've actually had a lot of that. Um, this season in a way do you know um so i thought that was really good um i do love the way we see how he interacts with guns yeah so first of all he's using the pistol as a threat and we have sarah basically saying why did you bother you wouldn't even use it <laughs> he's like, they don't know that <laughs> um and then when the unit sergeant who um i was gonna say right now is a bit of a dick as well um, mm. But when the unit sergeant handed him the rifle and he just, no comment, just hands it to Scorby. Like, I'm not going to fucking use this. You're Scorby. You, you use this. Um, that's what you do. Um, which, you know, I think is probably like the, like in one story is probably the most we've seen of the doctor doesn't use, like this doctor doesn't use guns. Do you know, I think it's probably, it's probably one of the most prominent mentions of it mm-hmm. um, compared to what we've seen in the past. Uh, the one thing I was a little bit sad about in the story is we don't get to see too much of science doctor here. We see like indignant observational doctor <laughs> mm. and we get to see undercover doctor, but we don't see too much of him doing experiments of him building something to solve the problem. Like he has Scorby build the firebomb mm. or the Molotov cocktail or whatever. He has the guys at the research base do the blood analysis. Um, we don't see too much of him doing the science piece. Like he doesn't come up with a way to kill the crinoid. Well, he does, I suppose. He says like there's no option except to firebomb the building, but like, he doesn't come up with any alternatives. No, it, it you just... know, like he doesn't come up with the pe- with the herbicide. Like which is it's not bad. It's not a bad thing by any stretch. Uh, but it's interesting in a story this long, we don't see him doing a sciencey bit. No, this is kind of more of a showcase of shouty, screamy, punchy doctor. Like, so he's yeah. just, you know, maybe like Tom just came back from a night on the town, you know? Yeah. Also, right? 
Mm-hmm. At one point, when the Doctor and Sarah escape, or when they're escaping from Scorby on the grounds, this would have been episode three, four, mm-hmm. three. Um, there is an action by Tom and a sound effect by the Foley team <laughs> that makes it look like he snapped Scorby's neck. Yeah. He wrenches his head to the side and they make a bone cracking noise mm. as if he just like killed him outright. And I remember going, holy shit, did he just try to kill him? Obviously he didn't. Like that's not what the doctor was doing, but it was a very interesting directing choice. <laughs> I I kind of pissed myself laughing at that because um <laughs> it, it was um uh, do you remember like the Darrow Breen thing about like uh uh, chiropractors that opera, you know that work on small children mm. and he was like you know he went or he went he did a chiropractic thing and he was like it's fucking voodoo you know like i've never seen a doctor like do that i've seen jason Bourne do it mm. but you can imagine like a bad guy kind of going fucking hell that's brilliant you know, sure the only reason i got the only reason i got into terrorism is because of the fucking constant pain of this thing in my neck so maybe maybe like that's what he was trying to do for scorby like a slight chiropractic adjustment yeah, maybe maybe he thought that that was the source of Scorby's dickishness. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that was sort of me for the Doctor. So I think it was a good showing. Um, yeah. You know, nothing really outstanding beyond his dedication to Sarah, which I like. Mm-hmm. Um, but how about you? Kind of more or less the same. Like the three things that stand out to me for the Doctor in this story are his like very flippant attitude, like when he's in a hostage situation. Uh, he's just like I don't care I am smarter than all of you um, his anger due to the threat of the crinoid like he snaps an awful lot here like you I, I remember thinking that Jesus if Trish didn't like his fucking anger and snappishness in Pyramids of Mars this wasn't be impressing her at all well the difference here is that the anger and snappishness of Pyramids of Mars it was directed at his friend hmm yeah. Here it's not directed at her. Yeah. So I don't mind so much. <laughs> yeah. Um and and then the last thing is like his fervent desire to keep Sarah Jane safe. Like my two my three favorite moments involving uh, the Doctor and Sarah Jane as a duo. Um actually sorry, no, my four favorite things. <laughs> I feel like the Spanish Inquisition. Our chief weapons are surprise, surprise and fair. Um f- so four things. One, where's the pod? Oh, it's around the it's in the house around the corner from Jack. <laughs> Jack yeah. And Sarah Jane, I kind of chime in at the end of it. Um, like the whole, you know, Scorby, Scorby, that that mm-hmm. thing. Uh I'm the doctor, and this is my best friend, Miss Smith. I like I like that. And also when he's in the compost and he's like, turn it off. And he's like, which switch? You know, like the switch on the wall. Not that one. I do love as well that like I love that the compost thing. We also have like the reverse of that where you know he's being you know he obviously turns it off and gets her out later on, mm-hmm. and then he's being pulled in by Chase. Who's <laughs> like five foot three, five foot four. Yeah. She's not that tall. No. Um, her hands her... are tied behind her back. This switch is really high, but she's only leaping for all she's worth trying to reach the button. It's like, dude, you're gonna have to like flick the button like off. This is never going to work. Um, but yeah, I, my other favorite duo moment of the two of them mm-hmm. is uh, when he's like, "Cool, just you know, a casual busy." It's like the, his fly casual moment, <laughs> yeah. Uh, where they just start walking across and keep walking, and guys are like, 
you know, hey, stop it. And he just keeps walking. And then he, they shoot and he says to run. He's like, you know, act normally. He says, <laughs> you bellend. That was never going to work. Um, I, like, as awesome as his anger was at times, I think it was a small bit overused here. Like, I, I thought like, he was shouting maybe a bit more than was necessary. Like, I've seen you in trickier scenarios and you've kept your cool like the character like the, the character now maybe not this incarnation but the character i've seen in arguably tougher scenarios and with a much more balanced tone yeah i think uh, we might circle back to that when we actually get to the crinoid itself because mm-hmm. i have questions about the crinoid in the story yeah. and i think part of it ties into that um my last comment though is uh, I do like how he tried to save Chase even though Chase was in the act of actively trying to kill the doctor at the same time mm. yeah because like, again it's there are times where we will see that the doctor deliberately takes someone's life mm. um, one story is going to be coming up in a couple of months that is from memory particularly malicious but we'll get to that when we cross it. But here it's like, I I like seeing the sort of like, I'm trying to save you. Stop. Just mm. stop what you're doing. I'm trying to save you. Um, but I like, I like that part of it as well. Very good. Very good. Then on to the companions. So Sarah Jane. If you're going to attack something with an axe, Mm-hmm. Attack it with the sharp edge, not the bit that joins to the handle. I I was just thinking like that. She didn't like so when she was hanging around with the unit lads, they clearly only had time to teach her how to shoot a gun. Like there was no close combat lessons or anything like that from Benton. Uh, because like how the, how the hell do you miss hitting that big fuck off tendril with a hatchet? No, she hit it. But with the bit that, that the blunt end, it wasn't going to do anything. It effectively bounced off. Um, I think Sarah in this one is interesting because, you know, usually Sarah's really good at investigation and driving plot and stuff like that. Uh, we don't get to see too much of that in this story. Um, we actually identify as Miss Duka and like her artwork and stuff. But beyond that, her primary focus seems to be motivation, both as the doctor being motivated, you know, against threats to her, but also like her motivating Moberly being like, you can do this. You're the only one that can cut his arm off. You like, she's really good at motivating people and actually motivating Scorby as well. Mm. She's really good at motivating. And that kind of seems to be her job in this story. I think with more uh, Morby, <laughs> Scorby, it's it's less motivational and more shaming. Yeah, but I think yeah, she but she's like that seems to be her job though. Here is sort of getting people going, getting mm. them doing the action, both in a sort of passive way, in the sense that the doctor is inspired to act to protect her and to save her and stuff like that, but also in an active way, mm. which isn't a bad thing. Like it's a good performance from Liz. You know, a couple of funny lines, you know, and stuff like that. But it's not really the same sort of plot driving that we're used to seeing from Sarah as a character, I don't think. Yeah. Like, I, yeah, no, I agree in the sense of, like, there's nothing really anything new here from her. Mm. Um, there's not, there's no, like, real 
there's no real defining standout moment from her mm. where when she's on her own bar her one-on-one with scorby you know like, this is just a game to you so long as there's guns you can boss people around you know that like her one-to-ones with scorby and again this is down to john chalice as well because he has such good chemistry with her and with the doctor as well mm. um that like she refuses to be intimidated by him like she's completely defiant uh although like at one point i think he leaves the room and she kind of breathes a little sigh of relief now that might just be the de-escalation of the situation kind mm. of thing as opposed to any sort of genuine worry or fear on her part but um yeah like there's bar that for me there's nothing really anything here to stand out compared to some of her other performances yeah i mean overall a good performance like there's nothing bad yeah in it. um but i think other than being a motivating factor mm-hmm. she doesn't really drive the plot in any big way um i do like her interactions with scorby particularly like in antarctica they don't really have much of an interaction but mm-hmm. when they get to the house um i do like her interactions like when it's just the two of them and she's constantly being like you're such an asshole not th- everyone thinks the way you do like, <laughs> like some I was... people are nice and kind and they mm. do exist like i one thing i was thinking about in the sense of that so last season just think about her entire run so with her in her first season was her and the doctor it was her getting used to like the rapid pace of life in the TARDIS and you know Mm. life with the doctor and he was such this strange otherworldly being then the next season with the brand new doctor it's like Harry is along for the ride as well Mm. so this season is like I suppose her first real I suppose Liz's first real chance to kind of really bring along the like the human comfort she had with tom baker and let that seep mm. into the role because it's now it's, it is actually starting to feel like just two friends that unfortunately end up in all these weird situations yeah very much so you can see that at the end of the story and i'll, I'll, I'll talk at the end of the story when we're talking about the overall but um at the end where she's like oh cassiopeia that's been fun and then she's like this isn't cassiopeia <laughs> We won't get a suntan here. (laughs) (laughs) It's just like, and then like her kind of going like, "You have we just arrived, or have we already been, or whatever, whatever the line is." Yeah. Um, like, have we been here before? Have we yet to come? I I, I find that line weird. In general, it's a weird read of the line. It's the hypothermia. It's fun because then you know, like it's them and their friendship. It's the hypothermia setting in. Uh, But uh, actually, just another thought I had there is that. This, I suppose, is not only is it her first season, like it's just her and Tom, it's also the first season without the framework of Unit. Yeah, I mean, like I said, there's we had Unit and Zygons, mm-hmm. and there was a little bit in Android and a little bit in this, but it's not the it's not the Unit gang in the same way that it was yeah. before. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, that's very different as well. Um, but that's pretty much all my thoughts on her. Mm. Should we move on to prominent characters? We should. So we have Sir Colin, Dunbar, and Keeler. So yes. Maybe that order, do you think? Yeah, might as well. Good. Um, I actually really like Sir Colin. I I love Sir Colin. The, 
if not for the fact that the actor who plays him, I love him in Porridge as the prison governor. I think he's hilarious. Um, but it's it's such a relief to see a government official that is pretty much on board the whole time. I love it. Like, yeah. He's not incompetent. No. He is both interested and willing to act. He is sceptical at times, but he's not an asshole about it. He's sceptical in the sort of thing. It's like, that's a fairly outlandish story. I am willing to entertain it so long as you have the proof to back it up. Yeah. And like he clearly, like, he could have sent anyone to the house. But mm-hmm. he went with Mr. Car himself. Like, he was the one driving the car. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I love that. I actually like, because he's just a fun person in general. He is. And, um, like, even, like, the, at the very end where it's, like, you know, the kind of... Would you like to come along with us, Sir Colin? It's like, well, unfortunately, my wife is expecting us home for tea. So, like, you kind of get this impression that he's been made aware of, like, the unreliability of traveling in the TARDIS, shall we say. Yeah, but it's such a it's such a contrast to, like, some of the other, like, government officials we've seen in Doctor Who in the past. Like, if we just think about, like, in, like, say, Sarah Jane's run, mm-hmm. do you know, we had... um Obviously, the government official who was trying to destroy the world. Oh, the um, in Invasion, yeah. <laughs> yeah, in Invasion of like This is such a contrast to that. Again, similar in the sense that you do have, like, if you hadn't known, if we hadn't met Dunbar first, mm-hmm. you would kind of be concerned of, oh, is this going to be Invasion again? Mm-hmm. Do you know? Um, but because we've met Dunbar, we know that Sir Colin isn't like that. But if you compare it to, what was your man from the Sea Devils? Oh yeah, that oh that dude. I can't remember what his name was, but yeah, like, but that where, guy. You know, where's my toast? Where's my toast? Here, take my coat or whatever. Um, it's nice just to have a government official who supports the plan. You know, he's willing to act. He defers when needed. He doesn't try to be like, oh well, this is my perfect. He's like, no, fuck it. What do we need? <laughs> I think he would have been. I think it would have been kind of cool to see him as a recurring character during like the third Doctor unit days. I think so too. I think he would have been a really good. I think him and it's actually kind of unfortunate. I think him and Nicholas actually would have, Nicholas Courtney would have got along really well. Mm-hmm. Um, I think his character in the Brig would have been a really good kind of duo together. Like you can sort of imagine, like at the end of an adventure, you know, the Doctor sort of swans off, refusing to do his reports in triplicate. And the two of them just go like down the barracks pub, and they're just yeah. like, "What the fuck was that?" Or like, or even him and John would be work really well together, and him yeah. and Joe. I think that would be nice. I think that'd be. Oh cool. yeah, like Sir Colin and Joe, I think would have been a great pairing. Yeah. Do you know? Because you kind of get the sense that like Joe would go off on like one of her like sort of heightened rambly new <laughs> conversations, and and he'd fully entertain it. He wouldn't like you kind of sense that he wouldn't demean her or anything like that he just let her speak um I'll... which i think is lovely so moving on to dunbar yeah um the opposite of thackeray <laughs> pretty much sell secrets the highest bidder doesn't even wait for more information before doing so mm. like basically like he's even says it himself like he's sick and tired of being passed over by was like pensionables and all this type of stuff it's like well okay i get that frustration but dude come on <laughs> yeah and the fact that he then later tries to redeem himself when it all goes tits up and he's like oh i need to take responsibility for my actions it's like 
really now now is like when they're trapped in the building now is when you're going to admit what you did well i'm kind of glad that he in terms of like because again we've seen characters that like dunbar do stuff like that Mm. but do absolutely nothing to try and make it right or even there they do they don't even acknowledge the there i'm looking at you kellerman yeah fucking um but like yeah just oh bastard at least dunbar is like i did wrong i have to try and make it right he actually and not only does he like say it to like a bad guy he says it to the person that he has directly betrayed sir colin yeah but i also just think like you're an asshole do you know what I mean? Like well, he no still took the he still took the money. Yeah. Do you know? Um after fucking the Antarctic base was blown up, hmm. he could have told people then everything he knew and he didn't. Yeah. Well like I'm not denying that he's an asshole, but I'm just I'm happy at the fact that like okay, at least you had the balls to like fess up, you know to the person. Eventually, Eventually yeah. <laughs> um, not, I don't know. I just he irritated me from the get go. I think like I mean, it's not even the fact that like he sold like state secrets or whatever. It's Mm. the fact that he did so immediately. Like he didn't even know Chase, and the doctor hadn't even gotten to see the pod yet. And immediately he was like, "Who could I sell this information to to get some cash?" Do I mean like? That's just, like, that's not even like, oh my god, there's this unique thing. I could make money off it. That was just, this thing is weird. I'm not going to wait and find out what it is. I'm not going to wait and see, you know, is it justified in me even trying to sell this information? Hmm. I'm going to sell it. And then it's like, you know, you went too far. You didn't have to do that. I'm not going to tell anyone I know it was you, though, because that would get me in trouble. Hmm. But later, when they do know it's you, and shit's kind of gone wrong, okay, then I'll fess up. And I'm like, yeah, fuck you. I wasn't particularly sad about his death, to be honest. No, neither neither was I. But I, I, I'm just so sick and tired of seeing characters like, like betray, like supposedly good characters betray people and not take any accountability for their actions, or if they do, it's like to the villain. Like, I'm just fucking sick of that. I'm like, oh, at least he had the fucking balls to say, it was me, I'm going to try and make up for it now. Doesn't excuse what he did, but I'm glad just to see that fucking difference. <laughs> Anything else you wanted to highlight about him? <laughs> it's Dunbar. Not dumb bear. it's Dunbar. <laughs> Dumbass is what it is. Dumbass. I'm Keeler. Keeler is a character I find in- interesting and incredibly annoying. I yes. love that like when he gets to Antarctica, he argues with Scorby like a small child. To the point where when Scorby's on the radio, it's literally like you know, flailing hands trying to get his attention hmm. and stuff like that. And like when he's going to tie up Stevenson, the fact that he says, like, excuse me, when he goes to tie him up. <laughs> like clearly Keeler is a lover, not a fighter. Let's put yeah. it that way. Um I don't get why he stays though. Like, he clearly hates working with Scorby. He thinks Chase is a fucking lunatic. So just fucking leave. So 
this is my biggest annoyance at Keeler, okay? Because two characters here, Scorby and Keeler, remind me of Regan and Scientist Dude from Ambassadors of Death. Mm. Uh, Scorby, obviously, because, you know, he's the thuggish muscle. Mm. Uh, not as smart as Regan, I would say. But mm. he's and Keeler obviously is fulfilling seems to be fulfilling the role of like reluctant scientist. But it's like, yeah. but why are you reluctant? At least we knew the other guy's motivations were that he was a laughing stock within the scientific community and or he was discredited. So therefore, like, you know, he was doing anything to try and either pay the bills and uh was it reinstate his good name. Or just his name. <laughs> but Keeler, it's like a case of, okay, you don't like working for the guy. You get treated like shit. But never once are we told what your motivations are. Like, do you have a, a large cocaine habit? Do you have a big gambling debt? Like, were you... Yeah, were I, you I think, I think that's you... the problem with him is that, like, why does he stay there? Just fucking leave, dude. Like, we're never told. Like, you know, is he not allowed to leave? Does Chase is have that, like, is that why Chase has so many armed guards on private property? Does Chase like, have compromising photos of you with plant life or something like that? It's like, <laughs> go! You don't yeah. like what he's doing. Like you didn't like getting the pot in the first place. Yeah. But then you don't agree with his experiments and you think he's a fucking fruit loop. So leave. Like, it's one of those things where like I don't like blaming the victim. But like But see, this a, is like, put your fucking sleeves down you dope but also like from our perspective as viewers he had every chance to leave and he didn't take it but this is the thing is like we don't know if he is the victim because we have no idea what his motivations or what his well, thing no, is he's the victim of the crinoid do you yeah. know what I mean? so he's the victim in that yeah. sense i don't want to say if that's his own fault yeah um but cause... he did roll up his sleeves when he knows that it can reach out and attack mm. you and then just casually leaned against the table mm. But this thing is like the only description we get of him is from Chase. You know, oh, he's a brilliant researcher. Like, but quite frankly, I prefer to get the story from a much saner horse's mouth. You know, <laughs> yeah, and like even later on, you know, um, he's like, you, know, oh, if you let me go, I won't hurt you. You know, whatever. And it's like, okay, this is like half crinoid, half Keeler speaking, but at the same time, Keeler. Have you looked down? She's yeah. not going to fucking let you go. <laughs> it's not going to happen. And why are you surprised that they're not taking you to a doctor? Do you know? Like, you've met these people. You've worked with them for presumably mm. a long period of time. Ah. <laughs> uh. No, just a frustrating character. And not even frustrating the sense of, like, you know, like, <laughs> you're so fucking stupid. It's like, like, why, what is even your, like, why are you there? Like, you, you, you're not, you're not a headache for the good guys. You're not a liability for the bad guys. You're just an incubator. <laughs> yeah, like, this is one of those instances where Sarah's journalism background would have been really helpful. Like, if she meets Keeler, or she, when she finds out Keeler's name, um, and the fact that he's a botanist, if she was like, "Oh my god, he's that Keeler, mm-hmm. the disgraced guy who, you know, 
was you know thrown out of the botanical society for shagging the bush. I don't know, mm-hmm. but like, <laughs> at least like we have a character there who has given us this type of information in the past. <laughs> <laughs> who, even if we didn't get it from Keeler himself, or we didn't get it from Chase or Scorpion, Sarah could have told us why he's there, mm-hmm. or give us an indication as to why he's there. Also, like you know, he stands up against Chase or against Scorpion rather um, in Antarctica. He's like, oh no, you can't. Um, you can't throw up. This is murder. She's right. This is murder. And then we're like, the timer's already started. He's <laughs> just like, oh. And then he leaves. He doesn't even say sorry. <laughs> he just leaves. That was, why, like, why, why was Keeler uh, kicked out of the Royal Botanical Society? Uh, according to this, he stuck his penis into a Venus flytrap just to see what would happen. <laughs> oh. <laughs> All right. So now we have the villains. So there's Chase, Scorby, and the Crinoid. What way do you want to stack this? Because we usually like to go with um, do the big bad at the end, or at least the most interesting bad at the end. Yeah, I think I think the most interesting bad is actually Chase. Okay. Um, and then the Crinoid, and then Scorby. Okay. So discuss Scorby first, and then work our way up to Chase? Yeah. Okay. I think so. Um, I love villains like Scorby because mm-hmm. it's so satisfying to see the doctor take a bully to task physically, like smacking a chair over him, giving him a chiropractic adjustment, <laughs> like upper, <laughs> upper him. All that uh, was missing was Sarah kicking him in the balls. <laughs> pretty the much, yeah, that was yeah, missing. Yeah. But I also love when the companion refuses to be intimidated by them. You know, mm. um. Much with like we had Regan, uh, the keys like a kind of a comparable thing. Um, Sevcheria from the Romans. Mm-hmm. I, I I keep bringing him up because I love Sevcheria. I thought he was a great villain. Um, so I, I like villains like that. Um, I think the antagonistic relationship between him and the Doctor was great. Like mm-hmm. I, I, I just it's the it's the chemistry between Tom and John is fantastic. Tom and mm. or sorry, John and Sarah Jane is great as or uh, Liz Layden is great as well. Um but it's just like this dynamic where it's like, you know, Scorby, who clearly is a mercenary of some description, um, is like kind of uh, he's just a, a scientist or whatever. It's like, you know, I, I'm better than you, I can beat you up physically. Well <laughs> this chair tends to disagree with that. Um so I, I really enjoyed that aspect of it. Um I thought I think he had a really good presentation throughout the story because he goes from hard muscle certain of himself to paid muscle, which is like you know, or like the acknowledgement that I'm just a gun for hire, you know, mm. regardless of all the weird shit going around. And then it's like you know, he's like, I survived Afghanistan, I survived the the Middle East, wherever else he would have been stationed. I survived all this kind of stuff and this is the stuff that cracks him you know it's yeah. the unknown it's the, it's the faceless enemy i mm. thought that the tongue that was great the way he died is is creepy it's just like drowning in of itself is bad enough mm. but being pulled beneath the water with no hope of escape or being obstructed from breaking the water's surface mm. it just adds to it it's it, it's just very unsettling yeah i'd agree i think like scorby is an asshole, mm-hmm. but in the best possible way. Yeah, he's a very well written asshole character. 
Mm-hmm. Like I said, he has great interactions with pretty much everybody. His interactions with Sarah Jane are great. His interactions with the Doctor are great. Like I love the fact that like the Doctor's like, you know, um, I'm the Doctor. This is Sarah Jane Smith. This is Scorby. I don't know his first name. This yeah. is <laughs> so, like that, that whole bit is lovely. Yeah. Um, I love the way he is with Sarah and the way she is back with him. Do you know, like he's constantly trying to sort of break her spirit and bring mm-hmm. her down to his level, and she's just refusing to have it. Do you know? Um, but his, he does say it himself. He is a mercenary mm-hmm. who only thinks of himself. Mm-hmm. To the point where he can't even comprehend that people may care for each other enough that they would stay and fight or they would return to it. Because he keeps saying, like, oh, they've scarfered because I would. Yeah. And Sarah's like, not everyone's like you. <laughs> do you know? Nice people exist. <laughs> people do things for the betterment of others. Like, not mm. everyone's a selfish prick like you. Um, but I love the fact that like he's not shy about who he is. Like he doesn't try to be like, oh well, you know, um, Chase, you know, gave me money and I kind of fell into. It's like no, I'm a hired hand. Like he mm-hmm. explains that that's why he became a mercenary. He doesn't lie about it. No, which is good. I I agree with you. His death is probably the most visceral of the deaths that we see. Mm-hmm. Um, with. We don't see the death of the um, this the unit sergeant who gets put through the composter. No. Um, but we do see Scorby's. So I think his death is probably the most visceral. Yeah. Um, in the sense that, like, you don't feel bad for him because he's an asshole, but, like, you do at mm-hmm. the same time. Yeah. It, it's, one, it's one of those things where you kind of have to go, like... They always say like you know no one deserves to die that way, and it, mm. it's it's true. Like no one deserves to die in any way other than I suppose you could say like fucking natural causes. But like it's if you are to be murdered, like it's just like you'd rather just get shot or stabbed. You know, like you don't want to be fucking yeah. that type of thing. You know, um, no, but like it, and it's just again, writing is always we always say like writing is like half the battle. You need to have a good casting, and John mm. Chalice is brilliant here he's so oh, he's, good. he's fantastic in this role yeah he's very good. uh the crinoid next yeah so i'm sort of in a weird position when it comes to the crinoid mm-hmm. so you mentioned earlier that the doctor sort of loses the rag a bit more than you'd think he would in this type of situation compared to the situations he's been in, in the past right mm-hmm. but in many ways i think the crinoid as a threat is very poorly developed. So, for hmm. example, the doctor says they all that the pods always travel in pairs. Why? Yeah. Why do they travel in pairs? What's what's the point of that? Yeah, because like he, he says, like he says that, and then later on he says that oh, they must have been dislodged due to like size a random or, eruption. Or yeah, something. it's like if that's the case, why is it only ever two? Like they're they're not the fucking Sith. Yeah, like, uh, there's no explanation for why they travel in pairs. There's no Mm -hmm. explanation for what happens if one of those pairs dies or doesn't germinate or whatever. Mm -hmm. There's no explanation for that. Um, And even when it comes to, like, the later parts of the story, the Doctor's freaking out considerably. Mm -hmm. And, like, okay, so it's going to become a big giant plant and it's going to eat people. That's bad. It's bad. But we don't really get a sense of like it's oh, we only find out information when the crinoid does something. Why isn't the doctor telling us more 
about mm-hmm. this threat. I think that's the bit that I sort of don't like about it is that like it's sort of like it's it's incredibly underdeveloped. Like, is it you know does fire is fire something it's afraid of? Do you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and this is where I think the fact that we didn't have the science doctor experimenting, I think, kind of hurts this a bit. We had the science doctor, we had the doctor reacting, but we don't really know why he's reacting that way. Mm-hmm. Um, like the fact that they travel in pairs, I, I, I don't get that. I genuinely don't. Um, the fact that they can communicate is interesting because that's mm-hmm. not something that the doctor tried to do with Winlet. No. Um, and was I completely forgot that it actually had the ability to communicate um, until we had the Keeler crinoid. And of course, the Keeler crinoid is creepy as hell. Mm-hmm. And like the whole idea of the crinoids is creepy. But I just think it was poorly explained. Yeah. In the story. Like, are, like does steam hurt them? If so, why didn't they make use of that earlier? Um, You know, we find out that, like, can they take over people's minds without that person becoming a crinoid? The doctor kind of suggests yes, but we'll talk about that more with Chase. I don't think that was true. I think Chase yeah. is a lunatic. Yeah. Um, you know, is it the crinoid controlling all of the plants further away? Or is it just the crinoid's influence that's unleashing the power of the plant? Like, how does that work? Um, I don't know. Like for me, I think it was just a lot of unanswered questions. It looks cool. Mm-hmm. I like the theory. I just think it was poorly developed. Yeah. So, like, as a concept, I think the crinoids are pretty cool. Like, because mm. the fact that they can attach itself to anything organic and grow from there, it's kind of reminiscent of you know, like um, the xenomorphs. You know, because mm. like we see them first of all in the first two movies coming from humans, then they're one comes from the dog, and then it's all this other stuff. So I think that's pretty cool. But if you were to bring the crinoids back at any stage, like it opens up like a huge amount of possibilities for storytelling. Like because, like seeing like an adventure that starts off on a planet taken over by a crinoid, you know, but it's it's just one big sentient jungle planet or whatever. That would be pretty cool. Or if the Doctor and Co. arrive in the middle of an infestation. Like, not from mm. the start of it, but the middle of one. So, and, like, if it's, you know, you say, like, okay, whatever it, um, say if it takes on some of the attributes of whatever it, it germinates in, you know? Mm. Like, I can imagine, like, for example, like, a crinoid starting off on Scarrow. You know, taking over Daleks, <laughs> or something like that. Like I think it would be kind of cool, but this is—it's—it's it's such a weird thing because even though there's a cool concept to it, I—I I don't think it's executed particularly well. Like you know, like whatever about the explanation of it. There's just something about the execution of it that it doesn't hit the same mm. as, like, for example, um, like Axos, you know, mm. like the big, the, the sentient organism, or even the Animus. Yeah. Yeah. 
it just doesn't really hit the same for some reason um which is a I shame think that in terms of like hive mind kind of you know villain or like mm. villainous species i do think the animus is really still the top tier for that in doctor who yeah absolutely do you know, I, I think what possibly could have done this a small bit better is okay we see that it's taken over the vegetation uh, of mm. stuff i think if you had like a three-tiered thing which is like it's influence on vegetation it corrupting or start or like you know um transforming other people that it like mm. infects and then you have the main crinoid like the killer crinoid but like say mm. the security guards like i think having like this varying levels of threat would have probably added to the tension of it as yeah. it is it's just huge giant jolly green giant beanstalk outside and then vine smashing windows you know mm. yeah yeah no i agree um which is unfortunate because mm-hmm. interesting concept yeah but then we have chase this dude is fucking cuckoo he, he like, is so much more he, like he didn't even get fries in his happy meal no Do you know he got four chicken nuggets and that was it like I will admit, I admire his goal of ensuring that plant life or ecology gets the same level of environmental protection as animal life does. Oh, yeah. I mean, like his initial question to Dunbar, when he finds out who Dunbar is, and he's like, what are you doing about this? Yeah. Now, the fact that he says that the Japanese culture is torturing trees. (laughs) Um, You know, his phrasing of it is perhaps... A little extreme. Mm. <laughs> I would just kind of guess, like, <laughs> dude, we see you walk across grass multiple times in this story. <laughs> Don't talk to us about fucking torturing plant life if that's what you're going to be doing, you know? Yeah, uh, like, I, I mentioned a while ago about the crinoid taking him over, mm. and the doctor says that, like, after uh, Chase interacted with the crinoid outside the house when he was taking the pictures. Now, the fact that Chase was unharmed means that the crinoid clearly took him over. I don't see any difference in him. No, it, it is. This is that, you know, the Lestris and Listen, Lestris and Listen, Lestris and Listen yeah. side of things. It's where someone whose mental state is on the tipping point, yeah. and then the ideology that they adhere to, they see it in all its wonderful, powerful glory. Oh, they completely believe that they are this thing. They mm-hmm. com- like in the sense of like Lester said, you know, like, I am your servant. Um, mm-hmm. You know that like, he like he did start having the phrasings and mannerisms of a Dalek. Uh, so Chase is the exact same thing here. Like, <laughs> like his musical soundboard, like the symphony of the plants or whatever the hell it is. Like that's just a weird tip of the iceberg. Um, I don't know do, about do you. Think as well, if Chase was anywhere near as intelligent as he claims to be, this story mm. would have been over in three episodes. He keeps oh, so. saying he's going to kill them. But first he'll give them a tour of his house. Mm. And then he'll give them a tour of his greenhouse. Then he'll put on a musical performance for them. <laughs> then he has them taken away to be killed later when he can enjoy it. Mm. I'm like, okay, I love the doctor and sir. Just fucking shoot them. Like, <laughs> The reason the story is so long is because Chase is like, no, no, I want to 
listen to my symphony of whatever and I'm gonna come back to that soundboard in a bit as well but like dude just, just kill them like, <laughs> don't like, try and turn them into compost you can do that later <laughs> like they you know the way he, he kept wearing gloves mm. I was expecting him like to have like green hands or like you know like be weird chlorophyll or him to have like show signs of prepossession or some something like that no mm. he just ha- wears gloves um, like I will say though, his actor is phenomenal. Like the guy who plays him is like mm. the performance is brilliant. Mm. <laughs> like hands down, it's, it's a brilliant performance. Yeah. Um, but the character is cuckoo for cocoa pops. He ab- absolutely is. Like to the sense of like you know the doctor's trying to save you, yet you're intent upon killing him. As like no, this is just. <laughs> It's just fucking stupid. Um, also, how does this guy have so many armed guards on a private premises in the UK? Like, I get that he's like, he's got a lot of money. <laughs> why, why do you need all these armed guards? Greenfly. But like, it's not just that they're guards who have like pistols. They yeah. have full on fucking, I don't know what type of gun they are, but they're like, uh, I think they had a, uh, Uzis. Yeah. Mm. On a private premises. <laughs> that has to be against. And no one comments on it. Do you know? Or like, what I find hilariously funny, right, is I actually forgot something we were talking about Dunbar. Dunbar makes like the stupidest choice ever and Chase is just like, for fuck's sake. Dunbar says he'll take care of the doctor and Sarah. Mm. So he has Chase's chauffeur <laughs> in Chase's car. You tried to kill them. <laughs> why did Chase give him his car with his chauffeur? Like, why was that guy there in the first place? <laughs> like, surely Chase wouldn't want to have his name anyway associated with this. But yeah, no, let that have let have that be the car that picks them up outside the World Ecology Bureau, where everyone can see. And I was like, okay. Interesting choice. Did you get the reg on the car? Yes, it was B A D G U Y one. So, I think I figured this out. Who mm. whoever does the socials is actually the first person to speak. Really? I, th- I think it is. Because I did the socials last week, and I went first. You did the socials this week, so therefore, you should go first. Okay. Um, for this story, I do like the story in itself. I think the thing influences are great. Mm. I think the intelligent plant life story is interesting and scary in turn. I think the idea of the crinoids is really interesting. The Doctor and Sarah have a great relationship in this. Chase is an interesting study of lunacy. We have, like I said, a, a politician that we actually like. <laughs> um, you know, We have Scorby, who is a good muscle man villain. Like an mm-hmm. interesting muscle man villain. However, I do agree with Philip. Miss Duca and her storyline is pure filler. 
hmm. for a story that was clearly struggling to reach its sixth episode at one time. Like all the times that um, Chase says he's going to kill them mm-hmm. and he doesn't. The very, pro- like the prolonged waits of them being captured and all of this talking and like the doctor was in the compost room for like fucking 10 minutes of like showtime, do you yeah. know, before they actually put him in the composter and went to kill him. Do you know, that kind of stuff I think is incredibly obvious in this story in particular. Mm. Like the first two episodes, I think were dingers. The first two episodes were great, but once it gets back to England, it just—it's mm. not even that it slows down because it does keep moving. But it's just like these small steps that are clearly there to fill the runtime. Anything set in Antarctica is great. Yeah, that's true. Um, <laughs> but like this is a story where I—I I do think it would have benefited from having like, this could have been a really good proper unit story. In mm. the second, or in the, like the, the second lack of two thirds, mm-hmm. um, it could have been a really good unit story. You know, with our proper unit gang involved, I think it would mm. have been really, really interesting because these are characters we care about mm-hmm. and we have connections to, and so we could do cutbacks to them that you'd be interested in, um, rather than, you know, another person going in the compost machine mm. or whatever. Also. The ending makes no sense. The TARDIS never went to Antarctica. So why would the coordinates be set for Antarctica? Yeah. It is the thing that has bothered me ever since I first saw the story. Lo, those many years ago. The Doctor and Sarah went to Antarctica by plane. Mm -hmm. The TARDIS never went there. The TARDIS had never been programmed to go there. So their whole thing of like, have we just arrived or are we yet to come? Makes no fucking sense because the TARDIS never should have gone there in the first place. It is like Me- the smallest nitty fucking thing. So I agree with you about the, like the whole TARDIS coordinates being preset. Yeah, that's stupid. Maybe they just meant their own personal timeline. Well, yeah, but like, but it's it's done in coordination with the TARDIS yeah. bringing them back there. And I'm like, what the? That makes no fucking sense. That's hmm. fucking ridiculous. Um, so yeah, it's unfortunately it's a bit of a mixed bag for me in terms of my enjoyment of it. Like you know, I struggle with six episode long stories in general. Mm-hmm. Um, this is one of the. Is it as bad as a Ren for Cyberman? No. That and that's a four parter. <laughs> that was a four parter. Why did I think it was six? Because it fucking drags on forever. That's why I thought it was six. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So, you know, it's not the worst six-parter we've had. It's not the worst (laughs) story we've had at all. Mm. But for me, it's very much a middling story. Mm. Um, It has some... It has nothing... There's no character bits that are wrong. That I, like... I hated that. There was nothing I hated. There just wasn't as much for me to love. So I gave it a three. Um, I think that might be being a bit generous. But I couldn't really bring myself to give it lower than that. Um, I'm sure there are people who enjoy the story a great deal. I just think it was too long and too padded from my like when we when we said that we had an underdeveloped villain species in the form of the crinoid and we felt that the six episodes was padded, that's that sounds like you could yeah. tell this one was done in a rush. Yeah. How about you? 
So, uh, I think you've been in my notes again. Um, so I didn't have time to go into your fucking notes <laughs> even if I wanted to. So the story, the story is far too long. It, it really is. Like it starts off as a thing, you know. So mm-hmm. immediate buy-in for me. Then it changes into the sort of the blob that had everything, mm. and separately, those are really good stories to go down. Like mm. having all. Like either set it all in Antarctica or find a way that in episode one the pod arrives in England to chase. Mm. Okay? Like they don't mix the two together because it's a very jarring experience to go from two in Antarctica to four in London. And like it, it the reason it's jarring is because of the in, as you said like the first two episodes are really good it's the inconsistency in pacing and quality of the story mm. right uh like so yeah as like ducat or duca first scene perf- makes perfect sense drives the plot oh yeah like i harrison face mace base whatever you know, chase like perfect she's the one that tells him where to go her second appearance as like the sort of like the spy for sir colin that's grand as well there's a nice tie into that you do not need we do not need to see like a two and a half minute scene of her in sir colin's office talking about her days in the of uh, the women's auxiliary air force mm. manning an akak gun you know during the blitz mm. like, like it adds it adds nothing bar some bit of humor that isn't really that funny you know yeah it, it it's <laughs> It's not like Corporal Jones in Dad's Army constantly going on about, you know, the the, the Germans, they don't like it up him or anything like that, you know? it's It comes across as, unfortunately, the ramblings of an old lady. Mm. And it, it doesn't really go well. Um, so that... The, the fucking, the musical shit, like, it's... There's a better way of doing that. You don't need, like, because this is the thing. Chase's credibility as an actual threat, for me, diminishes with that, like, concert he gives. I forgot to come back around to that. Go on. Sorry, I'll like, comment on that in yeah, a second. Yeah. Him playing the music in the background, perfectly fine. Like, as in, like, you know, like, it's an audio recording or whatever. But him actually giving a concert, that, like, it's, like... <laughs> It's like put them on the unnecessarily you know slow conveyor belt to the very slow circular saw, like you know that's what it is. Um, like, I, I the production values I thought were really good. Like mm. as you said, like the the axe suit looks much better green for the crinoids, really does. Um, the effects of the plants and everything breaking in and killing people really good. Um, the model the work I thought was very good. Model work was really good as well. The cast, for the most part, yeah, pretty solid. But John Chalice puts them all to shame. Like mm. Scorby is fantastic. Like f- for me, like in terms of legitimacy, I think Scorby is the best villain or the most important villain. Um, we just talked about Chase last because he's just fucking insane. Whereas I think Scorby is probably the realest threat to them. Uh, and he's also the most interesting. Um, did like the Doctor and Sarah Jane here as a duo. And again, as I said, I loved Sir Colin because of the lack of military bureaucracy. Even Major Beresford. It's like 
there's no like this is insane or like you know like this is like it's like dude you work for a unit you know <laughs> this is your like bread and butter but no sir colin was a bread of fresh air when it comes to having a bureaucrat involved in the stories and mm. i absolutely loved it and um and i actually am annoyed that he wasn't a recurring character beforehand or after mm. or afterwards because great character yeah i'm also kind of sad that the actor never was on the show again yeah because he was really good as an actor as well he is he's a really good actor so what's your score oh sorry <laughs> i was waiting for you to come back around to your point <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll do my thing so if you want. Yeah. um the music board right <laughs> i was waiting for it to be chekhov's music board mm. where the doctor uses it to create a god-awful noise yeah that the crinoid reacts badly to because that is the only reason I could think why they focused so much on the fucking music board. I think it was, was that just... it would come around in the end and be useful. <laughs> but it uh, doesn't. It's just weird. You see, we need to get across how weird Chase is. We know how weird he is. We like we, yeah. we we get it. You can do the weird bit and also have it be helpful in the end. But yeah. no, we just did the weird part and we didn't yeah. have the helpful part. Um, but yeah, sorry, I forgot about that um, we were talking. Back uh, to your so, score. Yeah, my score is is three out of five. It's like unfortunately for a relatively very strong season. Yeah, because like so, Didn't just to give you um, the numbers, so your average is finishing up at four point one seven minus four point two one, and that's that kind of surprises me because like last season, last season was a dinger. In fairness. It was four point four five, and I was like, "Oh, season thirteen has to meet, has to at least match it." We have terror, planet, pyramids, Morbius. Like, even though like some of those, like you gave fives and some of them I gave fives, like mm. they were all like four point five and above. I was like, "We have to at least match it." Android nuked it in the middle, mm. and unfortunately, it didn't stick the landing. Um, so you know we have two low stories. Out of six, which means that yeah. our averages. Now, I'm saying, unfortunately, in all of it's still a fantastic season. Mm. I mean, it's still a 4.17, 4.21 average. It has Terror of the Zygons, it has Planet of Evil, it has Pyramids of Mars, it has Brain of Morbius. Like, it's a fucking dinger of a season. Like, those, those first two, you can just skip, though. Yeah, like, <laughs> those, those first three are back to back. Yeah, <laughs> they're fucking back to back, and I th- yeah, I was it like for me, I just going through. It's a five, a four point five, and a five. Then yeah. you've got it for you. It's two fives oh, and a four point seven five. Four point seven five. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but like, yeah, it's it's an incredible fucking run of three stories. Android and forties, you said nukes it, comes back strong with Morbius, <laughs> <laughs> and, and then, then falls over a vine at the end. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus, <laughs> and it falls um, over, falls over a vine and gets dragged into a murky pond. Yeah, I, to be honest, with this like, I think in many ways he's doing really just emphasize by the fact that like, unless they're exceptionally good, six parters just aren't sustainable from a storytelling point of view. We've had a few that were phenomenal, but like, at least for me. Six parters just aren't really sustainable. They bored the ever living Christ out of me. 
I'm just looking back here at some of our previous scores, okay? Mm. And we haven't had, just from looking at it here, we haven't had a joint season finale above four since Inferno. Wow. Yeah, because... Fuck me, that was a long time that, ago. That, that is John's first season. Fuck. No, no, I'm not... Inferno was amazing. Yeah, and like, and like, this isn't like your overall seasonal score. This is like yeah. the last story of the season, sticking the landing and scoring the perfect ten, which Inferno did. It got a five from both of us. <laughs> so did the season before. War Games got a five as well. Yeah. Um. But yeah. So in terms of sticking the landing, I don't think we've had. Uh, we don't. We don't talk about the wheel in space. <laughs> yeah, we don't talk about it. I don't think we've had both of us be like that was a, an amazing story. Now, like. Mm. You know, I gave, where am I? I gave the Demons 4.25, gave it 3.7, which, which is good. It's above average. Yeah. Um, Time Monster, eh, average to above. Green Death, fuck you. Um, <laughs> spiders, you know, above average. Above, yeah, because like it's, we did have our, our kind of our disagreement about that because it just didn't click for me. But mm-hmm. yeah, we, like, we, there were parts of it that we did like. So we both didn't like John and you kind of your self indulgence, but uh, like Re- Revenge of the Cybermen, like oh, I'm so angry at that fucking story. I really am. <laughs> it's just oh, it's bad. Anyway, yeah. it's not bad. It's just frustrating. Yeah. Anyway, so that's the end of season thirteen, mm-hmm. right? And so far for John's first two seasons, Tom, he it or Tom's first two seasons. Why did I say John? For Tom's first two seasons, he is still running high. Mm-hmm. Do you know? He's got 4.45 average and like, between the two of us and a 4.19 average. And Sarah Jane is also running high. A 4, a 4.45, a 4.19. So next week we're going to be starting season 13 with mm-hmm. Sarah's penultimate story, which mm-hmm. is The Mask of Mandragora. Which mm. I cannot wait to start um, watching again because... I think once we're finished that, I should start. Should we start in the second season of the Sarah Jane Smith audio series? Very good. Yeah. So it's all teamed, lads. It's all interconnected. We'll explain as we go on. <laughs> um, but yeah. So, yep. Uh, I suppose. So get on your fanciest garb because we're going back to medieval Italy for The Mask mm. of Mandragora. Bye bye. Bye bye. Marlene. <laughs>